Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. First lecture, we uh, introduced the doctrine of the Trinity. We uh, we ha- we now have a working definition of what we mean when we say the Trinity, or we talk about the Triune God. I provided a, an overview of the lectures of where we are going with this series, and we are now going to um, be considering the the doctrine of of how we know about the Trinity the knowledge of our triune God. How do, we, how do we acquire that? What can we know? What do we know as Christians? What can the natural man uh, know without being saved? So that is our focus uh, this evening with this lecture. And we start with the fact that we cannot know God unless God reveals himself to us. Revelation is from God, and and we require a divine source for the knowledge of God, and that is true of his triunity as well. And what we find in the scriptures in the New, in the New Testament is that the, the Son is sent and the Spirit are sent for us to have access to the knowledge of the triunity of God. And when we speak of the Spirit being sent and the Son being sent, uh, the, the terminology that is used in the doctrine of the Trinity is the missions, the divine missions of the Son and the Spirit. And so this revelation of the knowledge of God has a Trinitarian shape to it. Uh, it is through the Son as the image of the invisible God, what is, what is seen, visible, manifested of God, through that, we, we know, uh, we know the, the triunity of God, and yet we need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. We need the, the inner work in actually joining us with God 
that enables us to to know God in his triunity. So there's a Trinitarian shape uh, to the knowledge of God, and specifically it comes to us through the missions, the missions of the Son and the Spirit within redemptive history. There are two things that we need to wrap our minds around when it comes to the knowledge of the Trinity. Uh, we need to walk a careful balance, if you will, between two truths that are both important and yet without balancing one with the other could lead to serious error. So the first is the limit that we have in our conception of the knowledge of God and perhaps as one of the chief mysteries of God, perhaps especially his triunity. No one knows the Son except for the Father, it says in the scriptures in the book of John. And uh, what, we, what we understand by that is that even though there is an important sense, which we'll get to in a minute, of, of the fact that we have come to know our God and, the, and, the, and our triune God through the Son who is sent from God to reveal him, Yet there is another sense in which the Son himself only fully comprehends God. Now, we'll, we'll move to the Spirit here in a minute as well, because we may, we may say the same about the Spirit in a certain sense. We're focusing here on the Son as the one who comes from heaven in the form of man, the one who comes preaching and speaking and revealing uh, the Father to us in, uh, in, in his own person. And so, even though we may say that we, we know God, and, and of course it is, it is right to say that we cannot be saved unless we know God, for to know him is eternal life, the Father and the Son whom he has sent, as it says, as Jesus himself says in John 17. Yet, the Son only knows or comprehends the Father. And when we use that word comprehend, that word theologically in history has been used to put a limit on the human knowledge of God. That God in all that he is and does is infinite. And that not only because we are sinners, but even in our creaturely status, that we cannot attain to the fullness of the knowledge of God. And in fact, because God is a simple being and does not have potential, as we would consider potential to be something that uh, could yet be, be greater or something that, that could happen, that, that has not yet happened, we, historical theology has recognized that God does not have that kind of potentiality, that he is pure activity. He is fullness, not only in his thoughts, understanding all things, but in what he, he does, in fact. Uh, outside of time, one, uh, one indivisible being, one indivisible act, in fact. And so, because of this, it is important that we understand that the Son and the Son only uh, comprehends the Father. Because to 
comprehend the Father in this fullness of way would be nothing less than being God. And, uh, and Jonathan Edwards has done some, has taught just so beautifully on this topic. It's actually brought out by one of his editors, um, Paul Ramsey, in one of the appendices to, um, to Jonathan Edwards, one of his works, uh, his ethical writings, in this essay called Heaven is a Progressive State. But, but drawing from all of what Edwards wrote, Ramsey states that, that Edwards conceived of heaven as a place in which man is growing towards the knowledge of God throughout all eternity, infinitely, and yet never arriving. And what a beautiful and uh, beautiful idea that is, that our God is so great in all that he knows and is, that we can, you know, progressively and for all eternity be be progressing closer and closer to him and, and, and knowing more and more about him and all that he has done uh, in all of you know creation, redemption, and yet never in a million years, in 10 million years, in a hundred million years, never arrive as creatures at a full comprehension of who God is. So it's important that as we consider the doctrine of the Trinity, that we recognize the limits of our understanding. Athanasius says, man can perceive only the hem of the garment of the triune God. The cherubim cover the rest with their wings. And, and all of the early church fathers recognized this fact. There, there is a certain mystery to the Trinity that we should expect. And so when it comes to what, whether it's the biblical understanding the work we're going to do in, in the scriptures, um, in our lectures, or when it comes to seeing throughout history how these scriptures were applied, grasped, built upon, um, and then even as we get into dogmatics and trying to find some system of thinking through the doctrine of the Trinity and interacting with some of the great systematicians, uh, throughout history and what they have said and how they've tried to order their thoughts about the triune God, we recognize that there are limits. There are limits and there is this, this mystery. And again, this accords really well with what I stated in the last lecture about considering that the, that the doctrine of the Trinity is less of a uh, you know, mathematical formula. And that's not to denigrate mathematics or even to put limits upon mathematics uh, because I think that there is a there is a wonder um, and a mystery to mathematics, too, that is sometimes not, not understood. But we need to think of it not just as a formula to grasp, but as a, a beautiful land of wonder. And, uh, and I think that understanding the limits that we have as creatures in comprehending God or understanding God is is an important part of actually upholding that wonder and the beauty of our God. But there is another truth that we need to uphold along with this, this limit that we have on our understanding of the triunity of our God. And it is to say and to hold fast to the fact that as believers, and, and by this I mean even, even new believers, immature believers, 
that you truly do know God in his triune nature. You may not be able to uh, understand much or be able to systematize what you have a sense of, but there is an intuitive sense that you have of the triunity of God that comes about in even the, the first aspects of, of your faith and, and of your confession. So let me suggest three ways in which even, you know, even the new believer truly knows the triunity of God. The first is to simply state that to be saved by God, which of course um, is grounded on some, at least some very, you know, basic facts of the Christian faith of uh, of what God has done in redemptive history, but but having a saving knowledge of God requires some knowledge of the Trinity. So, for instance, uh, in the book of John, what we find is that the Jews who knew God in a certain sense, they, you know, they would regularly re- recite the Shema, um, you know, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one, uh, that there is this idea that they had all throughout the Old Testament scriptures of, of who God is and his actings within, within history and, and with, within their history as a, uh, as a chosen people, a covenant people. And yet, Jesus says, as he proclaimed in the temple, this is drawing from John chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, you know me and you know where I come from. Now, he's speaking somewhat sarcastically about that because they believed they knew him in the sense only of his, of his flesh. But I have not come of my own accord, he says. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Now consider the, yeah, just the remarkable nature of that statement. He is telling his own countrymen, his fellow Jews, you do not know God. You don't know God. That apart from the knowledge of the Son, without, from, without receiving the Son as from God for our salvation, you cannot know God really at all, in any kind of fundamental way. Now, this gets into an interesting question that I'm, I'm not going to deal with really in any detail at this point, but it is the question of whether the Jews believe in the same God we do as believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians. And uh, I think that we would have to say that there is an, a certain aspect in which they do, and I think you could prove that scripturally, that there is an important aspect in which they do, they do believe in the same God. But I think there is another aspect in which we would need to affirm that they do not, and we see that here in this, in this passage. And this really gets into the fact that to be saved, if you are, you know, you're sitting here listening to me speak right now, as a Christian, as somebody who has been saved from their sins, that requires a certain knowledge of God, uh, or certain, sorry, a certain knowledge of Christ as the one who is from God, outside of mankind, in order that we might have a salvation that does not depend on our good works, which are insufficient, uh, which does not rely on uh, on anything 
within mankind, which has completely fallen and depraved. And so we need our salvation to be provided by God. Jesus Christ has to be God. The, the, the one who died upon the cross has to be not only fully man to bear the punishment for our sins in order to restore man from within mankind, but also must be fully God in order to restore the honor of God. Now, a new believer may not be able to frame things in such a way, but he has an intuitive understanding that Jesus Christ is God, even within that, that saving knowledge of God. If you have an experience of salvation, you must have some grasp of the triune nature of the Lord, or of, of God. Now, that gets into our next aspect of this, which is that in the confession of Jesus Christ is Lord, that there is a, uh, a very clear idea of the triune nature of God. Again, it may not be fully developed, but what do we mean when we say Jesus Christ is Lord? Well, we may mean a couple of things, and I think that both that the Lordship of Christ, that title relates both to his to his human nature in that he is uh, in the dominion that God gives man. He is above all other things. He is above all creation. He is the firstborn over all creation in that sense. But there is also very clearly in scripture this idea that Lord means God. It means God. And in fact, the apostles would use this word in the Greek, uh, Lord Kurios, to, uh, in translation of uh, the word uh, commonly called Yahweh, commonly um, pronounced that way in the Hebrew. My, my preference is simply to, to use the word Lord because I see that as being in a, the apostolic pattern. Uh, there are some believers that, um, that would not agree with me, <laughs> teachers that would not agree with me and, and would prefer to use that sort of that name, um, Yahweh. But, uh, but that it's quite clear that in the scriptures, Jesus is Lord is a statement of his divinity. And so even that basic statement that every believer must have, Jesus Christ is Lord, that contains within it this intuitive understanding, whether it is worked out in great detail or not, that there is at least two persons in God. Uh, that this does not overthrow the, the godness of God the Father. It does not uh, mean that there are two gods. Uh, and so even in this, in this basic sense, we believe, and every believer has this experience of the triunity of God. The last aspect, again, even just from the, the, the basic outset, even the, the, you know, the, the youngest believer the least mature believer uh, that we see as being inherent in their experience is the baptism into the triune God, which is stated within the Great Commission. Um, that we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And notice there that it speaks of one name. Name is the is used to refer to the, the nature or the person of God. And so, you know, we might be 
led astray if it had said the names of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as if, you know, maybe there are three gods, or or perhaps maybe this is a formula to say that we need to, you know, we need to we need to mention all three names just to make sure this baptism works uh, and is effective for the you know for for the washing away of sins. But the formulation here really points to the the three in oneness of our triune God. And so I want to affirm with you that even as we get into some depth within these lectures, and hopefully we'll build this out biblically, historically, dogmatically, and then getting into the, the vestiges of, of how we see Trinitarianly within our world. And so there will, yeah, there's going to be some times probably in which you are stretched, perhaps greatly stretched in your understanding of our God. Yet, I want to affirm that there is a sense in which you already know the triunity of God. It is a true knowledge of the triunity of God. And to embrace the fact that because God is God, he is infinite, that there is a depth there to to who he is and maybe specifically to his triunity that is worth loving, experiencing, desiring, and not to get, you know, frustrated by the fact that, you know, there are certain things that we don't know about the triunity of God, or that, you know, there are certain things, times in which we may feel overwhelmed by this knowledge. Now, one of the questions that comes up with the knowledge of the Trinity is how the knowledge of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, relates to other aspects of theology. So, for instance, it is a fascinating um, thing to, to look at how, for instance, the systematic textbooks, the systematic theologians, categorize the, the doctrine of God and, and where they put in the Trinity in relationship to the other aspects of um, of the knowledge of God or of the doctrine of God, uh, I've I've had to do this recently in, in going over the uh, kind of getting an overview of the systematicians and and how they categorize the the doctrine of the Trinity within their larger systematic systematics and uh, because I'm, I'm putting together a systematic outline and teaching for um, the children at our uh, at our compass schools, so our K to uh, twelve. Well, right now it's K to seven uh, classical Christian schools, and it's been fascinating. And I've noted this to some degree before that the systematicians sometimes a lot of them don't know what to do with the doctrine of the Trinity in relationship to other aspects of the knowledge of God. Uh, in many cases, the doctrine of the Trinity is placed last in the doctrine of God, after the incommunicable and communicable attributes. Um, Now, there are some exceptions to that. One of my favorite theologians um, on the Trinity, maybe not quite so much on some other areas of doctrine, (laughs) is uh, is a medieval theologian by the name of Bonaventure. And he, in his uh, Breviloquium, 
which is his sort of his brief systematic theology. And it is brief. It's not, it's not large or comprehensive. But he puts the Trinity actually in the beginning of, uh, of his doctrine. That, that's very rare. I've, I've only seen that, I think, maybe in one other uh, systematic theology. Uh, now, now, here's the interesting question is, is where should we place the doctrine of the Trinity within our doctrine of God? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down this tangent just a, a little bit further because I think there's some, actually some use, useful things that come out of it uh, if we follow this path just a, a little further. Even though I have some desire because of my interest and my love for the doctrine of the Trinity to put the doctrine of the Trinity first within the knowledge of God or within the doctrine of God, I do think for biblical reasons that we ought to place the oneness of God. And by that, I am referring to uh, his incommunicable attributes in a, in a special way. I do think we should put that first. And I do think that that is the pattern of scripture. For instance, within the Old Testament, we see that the oneness of God is emphasized first. Now, that is not to say that we do not find the doctrine of the Trinity within the Old Testament. We do. And when we look at um, our our biblical survey, we will consider some of the very, um, I think we could say very clear proofs of the Trinity within the Old Testament. And clearly, the apostles, when it came time to to proving, for instance, the divinity of Christ, they relied on the Old Testament to, to do that. So we have good, good, good precedence for, for thinking that. Yet, I don't think there is any question that it is the oneness of God that is emphasized. And I think that there is some, some importance to this in the fact that when you get to the New Testament, and we have all of a sudden these these three persons revealed, again, in the preaching of the Son and by the illumination of the Spirit, that we are not tempted towards polytheism. But there is already this ground of oneness that really reflects in everything about creation and redemption, everything about the world that, that we look, you know, that we, that we see around us. There, that oneness has to precede multiplicity. And we could, we could prove this philosophically. You could prove this uh, in relationship to the natural sciences. It is a fundamental axiom of, uh, of the world around us. And so we ought not to be surprised when we see this biblical pattern in Scripture either, that there's an emphasis on the oneness of God in the Old Testament first. And I think that that ought to be reflected in our doctrine of the knowledge of God. I do think it is right and proper to consider, for instance, the simplicity of God, the independence or aseity of God, the infinity of God. I believe these things have first place in our knowledge of the doctrine of God. Uh, so then we might ask, okay, well, do, you know, are some of these systematicians right then just to sort of put the Trinity last and sort of to append, as it were, the doctrine of the Trinity to 
you know, the rest of our knowledge of God. And here, this is where I disagree with many of the systematicians. You see, I think that we ought to place the doctrine of the Trinity between the doctrine of God's incommunicable attributes, which emphasize his oneness, and the doctrine of his communicable attributes. Now, the reason I believe that is because the communicable attributes are inherently relational attributes. Now, there are maybe some of the attributes uh, that, you know, in which this is more greatly seen than in others, or more easily, we, we might say more easily seen than in others. Let us take, for instance, one uh, attribute that has been emphasized throughout history of the doctrine of the Trinity, that is uh, the goodness or the love, um, goodness perhaps being, I, I believe, being the larger category, that love would be sort of the preeminent characteristic within that larger category. Um, the, the, the love that, that God has. Now, throughout Christian history, we, we understand that, that God is love in a certain sense. And so, because God is his attributes, according to the doctrine of divine simplicity, uh, there is, you know, there is an important connection between the, uh, the incommunicable attributes and, and the communicable attributes of God. Nevertheless, love is a relational attribute. When you say that somebody is loving, you, you have to posit that there is someone that that person loves. And so, for instance, it has been often uh, argued that this is why the God of Islam is not a loving God. And, and this, is a, this, is a, this is an historical uh, doctrinal fact. Uh, even Muslims themselves, Muslim theologians, um, refrain very often. There may be some breadth in this, but they refrain very often from saying that, you know, God is, is loving. Um, but this is because the Islamic God is not triune. He is a, a solitary monad. And in fact, even if you could state, and if... Uh, for instance, Muslim theologians wanted to emphasize that, yeah, you know, God is love. They would only mean that in the sense that he loves uh, creation. But we believe as, as Christians that God does not need creation. He did not need to, cre to create, to be loving. He is inherently loving, but this requires interrelations within one God. And so, I believe that the incommunicable attributes are founded upon the personhood of God, and his, in particular, his three persons. And so, I believe that the correct way to order our knowledge of God is to start with the incommunicable attributes, to proceed to the personality of God, and by that I mean the tri-personality of God, is three persons, and then finally to the communicable attributes. Now, let me finish this lecture by noting, and, and this does relate to 
the you know a systematic nature of um, of the knowledge of God. This question of whether or not unbelievers can perceive the Trinity, whether unbelievers can know something of the triune nature of God. Now, throughout most of these lectures, I will be relying upon not only my own studies, but the historical doctrine of the Trinity, stemming from the early church fathers, developed within the medievals, um, you, you know, with further controversies <laughs> within the modern era, systematized within the dogmaticians. In, in very few ways do I deviate from the received doctrine of the Trinity. There are some places in which I will emphasize some things that are perhaps a little bit different. And I've already stated that uh, in my opening lecture with my emphases on exploration and experience, uh, which, which of course are not outside the doctrine, the received doctrine of the Trinity, but, but simply constitute an emphasis that I, I see at times has not been reflected within uh, perhaps especially the Western tradition of the Trinity. Uh, but I will point out throughout these series of lectures where I may deviate somewhat, at least an emphasis, on the received doctrine of the Trinity in the Western tradition. And, and this is one of those places. Traditionally, theologians of the Trinity have stated that the unbeliever cannot know the triune nature of God. Now, there are others who would, who would disagree to some degree, and I will, um, I'll, I'll point out a few people in, in a moment here. But let me just give you some background for an understanding of this, because we might ask, well, can the un unbeliever know God at all? And this gets into the, uh, the understanding or the exploration of what is called natural theology. And uh, David Haynes has just put out a, a book quite recently on natural theology and um, just a really good development of how the, for instance, the ancient Greeks and philosophers developed from reason and, of course, from their own conscience to some degree as well, a doctrine of God that in regards to the incommunicable attributes, as well as some of the communicable attributes, got very close to a definition of God, um, whether it's within Plato or Cicero. I've, I've read a little more Cicero than Plato, read some Plato, uh, but there are many others as well that, you know, they could lay out a doctrine of God in regards to his aseity, simplicity, and infinity that gets very close to how we would systematize those incommunicable attributes as Christian theologians. And so they were able to, again, reason from what is seen. Of course, Romans 1 talks about that. And um, that's not to say that they were believers. They, they weren't. Um, they, they did not have a conception of, um, of Christ as Lord. They did not bow the knee to Christ as Lord. And, and part of that, of course, gets into then the doctrine of, of the Trinity. That, okay, they, they didn't 
see Christ as Lord. Again, we've unpacked that, his, you know, his divinity. He came from God outside of man to affect salvation. They were not baptized into the triune God. They didn't have, have this personal experience. But is there a sense in which the triune nature of God may be perceived by man according to, for instance, his, his reason or empirically seeing the world or um, in, his, in his conscience, even if he does not receive it from, you know, from divine revelation from God, that preeminent um, aspect of, of revelation. And again, in traditional teaching on the Trinity, it, there's often been quite a, a strong limit put on this natural knowledge of the Trinity. But I think there are a couple of ways in which we would want to actually say that the, the natural man may perceive elements of the triunity of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first is uh, within is just the, the very fact of polytheism within our world. Now, let me unpack this. Let me build a foundation for, for this and why I think this is a reflection of the triune God. First of all, we need to understand the nature of error. All right, the nature of error and indeed the nature of sin is by way of privation or loss from uh, truth and, and goodness and, and in fact are dependent upon truth and goodness from their existence. And, and Augustine and Aquinas have both you know, pointed this out. And I think it's a, an important philosophical point. Um, it, it protects, for instance, the idea of God as being uh, the the non-originator of sin. Uh, that that sin does not have a independent substance, but it is merely the loss of the original goodness that God created. So there are important apologetic reasons stemming back to Athanasius and Origen that people have believed in um, in this you know in this nature or the nature of the relationship between sin and goodness. But this relationship also holds in regard to the uh, to the relationship between error and truth. That every error is merely a I mean merely is maybe not. <laughs> You know, we're thinking philosophically when I use this word merely. Um, I mean, error is is heinous, right? It's it's a terrible thing. Uh, it results in terrible destruction and damage. But we might say, in a certain aspect, I feel from a philosophical angle, that it is merely a perversion or a loss of the ultimate truth. And this is why every error has in it a, a nugget of truth. And this is important even for our apologetics, that you would know that even if somebody, you know, has a different religion or is in considerable error in their beliefs, that there, there are nuggets of truth, in fact, to build upon in building up the foundation of, of truth that heads toward the knowledge of the true saving knowledge of God. Now, I say all of this by way of background, because it's important to note then, based on this, that when we see polytheism in the world, that this is actually a perversion of the doctrine of the Trinity. So, for instance, when we have a pantheon of gods within Greek and Roman, well, 
I mean, all, you know, almost any pagan religion, that this pantheon is, is a reflection of, for instance, some truths that we have in Scripture. As I've mentioned, of course, that the triunity of God in his tripersonality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but also perhaps in some ways picking up on the truths of the divine council, the, the cosmic court that we see in, in Scripture, and perhaps you know, especially in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 82 and, and, and Deuteronomy 32. Um, and, and so, for instance, the, the Hindu uh, faith has, a, has a, uh, a triad of gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and, and Shiva. Now, even in, the, in this threeness, there, you know, this isn't a, a true reflection of the Trinity, um, there's, there's, it's a perversion of the Trinity in, in considerable ways. And yet it is, a, it is a reflection within human experience, within human religion, within our, um, our empirical world of the triunity of God. Uh, but there is a further reflection that I want to point out, and I want to finish with in this lecture. I, I think it is helpful, and it comes, I'm, I'm most familiar with this idea of our minds reflecting the Trinity through W.T. Shedd. Now, Shedd is drawing from Augustine, and Augustine, in his, um, his work on the Trinity, he developed several, not just one, but, but many psychical analogies, analogies of how the, the human mind in certain ways reflects uh, the triune nature of God. And yeah, I'm just going to be mentioning one of those, uh, one of those aspects. And again, I, I'm, I'm more familiar with it from, uh, from Shedd's perspective. But the reason that Augustine began to develop these analogies, partly was it was an apologetic um, thing for him to develop these analogies, but it's important that we understand that these illustrations get maybe somewhat close to the doctrine of the Trinity because our minds are immaterial. So, for instance, you may be well aware that St. Patrick tried to prove uh, or at least provide an analogy, an illustration of the Trinity to the pagans of Ireland by using a three-leafed clover. And, and I don't think that's wrong. But it is severely limited. It's severely limited because anything within the material world cannot co-inhere. The very nature of substance and material within this world is that it inhabits space and it cannot inhabit the same space as some other subsistence or some other, some other thing. But the mind is not like that as, a, as something that is recognizable and yet not material, it, it provides a good analogy for, for the Trinity. Now, to get to the analogy that, that um, the one analogy that I, I think is particularly helpful, and again, using, using Shed, kind of looking at this through Shed, first of all, we are subjects within our mind that we understand that we ourselves, as our minds, 
are able to think and to perceive other things, to think about other things, which are the subjects of our, of our thinking or our perception. And in this object and subject, you have a reflection of the Trinity. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Uh, we may think of the Father as the divine object, as the source of all things, who, for instance, to go back to the, um, the analogy of love, uh, that communicable attribute, that he loves his son. The son is the, is the object of his, of his love. Uh, we could, you know, we could do the same thing with, with knowledge that God knows his son. Again, knowledge is a relational attribute. Uh, when you say that you know something, there has to be, you know, or when you say that you are knowing, there has to be something that you know. The father is the object and the son is the subject. Now, here's where things get interesting when it comes to how God has created the human mind. Uh, it has a triadic and trinitarian shape to it. That one of the things that distinguishes man, and we might even say the triunity of man, um, as long as we understand it, it's you know it's analogical, it not not perfectly in in the way, not completely in the way that that God is triune. But one of the ways in which we reflect the triunity of God as those made in his image, in distinction from, for instance, animals, is that not only are we objects that are able to perceive and know, uh, sorry, are we subjects that are able to know and perceive an object, but that we are actually able to think of ourselves thinking of that subject. We are self-aware in our knowledge of a subject. The animals do not do this, right? I've, I've got a dog and uh, he certainly knows subjects. If I, if I throw a stick, there is no, no question that he knows there is a stick that he wants to fetch. He wants to bring it back. And I can even teach him basic, um, you know, basic language that he, you know, he puts together the idea of, you know, the word here or the word uh, treat or, you know, whatever the, it is, the words that I've taught him. And he understands to a certain degree what those means. He is a, uh, an object or sorry, a subject or an ego. And he has some conception of a subject, but what humans are capable of doing is that we are able to internally think about what we are thinking about. And it's remarkable it's remarkable that how we do this, and it is a reflection of the triune God. And so this is what W.T. Shedd says in regards to, uh, and maybe he states this a little bit strongly, but uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good thing to think about in, in regards to whether the unbeliever has some sense of the triune God. He says this, in discussing the subject of the personality of God, we have seen that this involves three distinctions in the infinite essence. God cannot be self-contemplating, self-cognitive, and self-communing unless he is trinal in his constitution. The subject must know itself as an object and also perceive that it does. This implies not three distinct substances, but three distinct modes of one substance. 
Consequently, divine unity must be a kind of unity that is compatible with a kind of plurality. The unity of the infinite being is triunity or trinity. God, God is a plural unit. The attempt, therefore, of the deist and the Socinian to construct the doctrine of divine unity is a failure because it fails to construct the doctrine of divine personality. Deism with Socinianism and Islam, while asserting that God is personal, denies that he is three persons in one essence. It contends by implication that God can be self-knowing as a single subject, merely without an object, without the distinctions involved in the subject contemplating, the object contemplated, and the perception of the identity of both. The controversy, consequently, is as much between the deist and the psychologist as it is between him and the theologian. All right, so even the psychologist proves his understanding of the human psyche, proves the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and again, Shed may state this slightly too strongly. Nevertheless, I do believe there is a, an empirical reflection of the Trinity that bears witness against man. And so we want to uh, understand the doctrine of the Trinity. We want to take that which is in scripture as that predominating revelation of God in, in the missions of the Son and the Spirit to, uh, to teach us of, of God. We want to um, understand our own experience and even how our own conscience reflects the doctrine of God. And we want to see in all of creation, as we get to the vestiges, how God's triadic nature is, is, uh, has its fingerprints over all that he has made and done. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on the Trinity. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. That's spelled P-R-O-E-L-I-U-M. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Have a great day.